Hey, hey, and seasonal salutations. Welcome to episode 74. As always, thank you for hitting that play a download button to have a listen to my ramblings about all things movie-related past, present, and future. Whether it's your first listen or your 74th, you are taking time out of your morning, afternoon, or evening, as the case may be, to tune in so you have my gratitude. I am your host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. Let's just cut right to the chase. Everyone has at least heard of Miracle on 34th Street, right? Okay, maybe you haven't actually watched it, or maybe you only know the 1994 remake, the one with Richard Attenborough and the little girl from Mrs. Doubtfire and Matilda. Or maybe it sometimes gets confused with that famous editorial, Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus. But the original film, a three-time Academy Award winner, is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. And if the idea of talking about a 75-year-old movie that is in black and white has you be like, No! Whoa, chill out, dog. Don't get your jingle in a jangle. Just remember the wise words of actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. So don't pull the cord to get off the bus and stick with me as we take a look at this classic based on a story by Valentine Davies with a screenplay by Davies and George Seaton, directed by Seaton as well, and starring Maureen O'Hara, John Payne, little Natalie Wood, and in the role of Chris Kringle, that would bring him the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor of 1947, Edmund Gwynn. For this episode, we'll follow the usual format for an episode with no guest, spoiler-free plot setup, the premise of the film and the origins of the story, then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts, and then we'll wrap up with the poll results and the listener trivia segment. So join me as we rewind back to the holiday season of 1944, the year when the D-Day invasion on June 6, also known as Operation Overlord, began with Allied forces crossing the English Channel to land in Normandy. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt is elected to a fourth term as President of the U.S. The cost of a first-class U.S. postage stamp was three cents. The St. Louis Cardinals won the World Series and the first instance in the U.S. of censorship on network television occurred just 40 minutes before airtime when NBC executives declared some of the lyrics to the song We're Having a Baby, My Baby and Me from Eddie Cantor's 1941 Broadway show Banjo Eyes unsuitable. Now, when I googled the lyrics, I came across the verse that I figured was the problem. I'm thankful for Wheaties, they made a champion of me. We're having a baby, my baby and me. Sacrilege, darling. But as it turns out, that was not what had the network execs shaken like a pimp in a cathedral. No, it was spoken dialogue during a break in the song between Eddie Cantor and Nora Martin, and she says, Thanks to you, life is bright. You've brought me joy beyond measure. To which he replies, Don't thank me, quite all right. Honestly, it was a pleasure. She says, Just think, it's my first one. And he gamely offers, The next one's on me. But I digress. Back to the holiday season of 1944. There was a screenwriter by the name of Valentine Davies, or Val to his friends, who was born in New York City in 1905. The son of a real estate agent, but rather than entering the business world, he followed his passion and enrolled in the theater program at the University of Michigan, where he acted, designed sets, wrote theater reviews, and even directed. He met his future wife, Elizabeth Strauss, there when they were both performing in a play called The Man in the Bola Hat by A.A. A. Milne, creator of Winnie the Pooh. He later did some grad work at the Yale Drama School in New Haven, Connecticut, before trying his luck out in Hollywood. But then he was called into service with the U.S. Coast Guard during World War II, and it was around this time when, on Christmas Eve, he was pushing his way through a packed department store in Los Angeles, trying to find a Christmas gift for his wife. 
people clamoring about, bumping into each other. And according to film historian Rudy Balma, Davies felt surrounded by all this rampant commercialism and got thinking right there in the middle of the crowded chaos, is this what has happened to Christmas? I wonder what Santa Claus would think if he saw all this. So instead of completely losing his shit, he was unexpectedly hit by a burst of inspiration for this story. He jotted down his ideas for characters, particularly that of a warm-hearted, slightly eccentric old man who said that his name was Kris Kringle, and a young girl who'd had it drilled into her head since she was a zygote that Santa is not real and there's no such thing as magic or fairy tales coming true in this world by her pragmatic, no-nonsense, single, divorced mother. He brought his story idea to his good friend from his University of Michigan days, actor-turned-screenwriter and director who just mounted his first Broadway play that was unfortunately a miss at only 23 performances. His friend's name was George Seaton, and he would eventually direct the film. Seaton told the American Film Institute, quote, It started out when Val and I were talking. We were getting so teed off about the commercialism of Christmas. And Val said, Gee, imagine if Santa Claus came back, what would happen? Of course, Val's idea was that it really was Santa Claus, end quote. By July 1946, a year and a half of fleshing out the story and collaborating on different possibilities for the direction the story could go in, 20th Century Fox optioned the story before it even had a final title. In their infinite wisdom, the big brass at Fox suggested some titles that only their mothers would have applauded, including, but not limited to, Mr. Kringle, Miracle on Herald Square, The Big Hat, and, wait for it, it's only human. No! God, please, no! 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 Both Davies and Seaton also found themselves fighting an uphill battle with 20th Century Fox as far as budget was concerned. Studio head Daryl F. Zanuck had low expectations for the film and refused to hand over one cent more than $630,000, which is about $8 million in 2022. Additionally, George Seaton also had a promise to direct a musical comedy starring Betty Grable called The Shocking Miss Pilgrim. The next step was casting. The studio turned to one of their contracted players, Maureen O'Hara, for the role of the no-nonsense divorced mother Doris Walker, an executive at Macy's department store in Manhattan who is the anti-believing in Santa Claus character, responsible for her little girl Susan being such a wide-eyed child of wonder. Maureen O'Hara was less than pleased when the studio contacted her to tell her that this was her next assignment. She had just finished two back-to-back -back films, and now the wall was winding down, so with international travel bans being lifted, she was able, at long last, to fly home to her native island to see her family for the first time in years. And she was pissed when the phone call came from way overseas. She pleaded with them, I just got here, I don't want to go back but they told her that was such a small budget, they couldn't afford to wait for her. So she flew back to the States, was given the script, she read it, and went from being a raging wounded animal to a bright, effusive team player who marveled at the, quote, wonderful, warm, sentimental, gorgeous story, end quote. And it didn't hurt that she learned that she'd be working with John Payne in this, their third film together, after 1942's To the Shores of Tripoli, and 1946's Sentimental Journey. Payne would play Fred Gailey, Doris Walker's bachelor neighbor and attorney who would defend Chris Kringle in court. As for Chris Kringle, 69-year-old British actor Edmund Gwynn donned the hat and suit and to literally fill the role, he gained 30 pounds to get that broad face and round little belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. 
Actor Alvin Greenman, who plays Alfred, the young custodian at Macy's, recalled, quote, He always found time to talk to me, and he knew that it was my first picture, and he was very, very encouraging about what I was doing, and he said, You're going to get marvelous reviews in this movie, and he was right. He was just a dear, dear man, end quote. And lastly, the crucial role of little Susan Walker. George Seaton chose eight-year-old Natalie Wood, noting that she had, quote, an instinctive sense of timing and emotion, end quote. She shot this movie simultaneously with two others, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, which is set in England and required her to speak with a British accent, and Scudderhoo, Scudderhay, and no, I don't remember that one either, where she played a little farm girl named B. So with three movies in production at the same time, along with the required three hours of school each day, she was stretched pretty thin. But she was a total professional, with a knack for memorizing not only her own lines, but everyone else's as well. Author Suzanne Finstad, who wrote a biography on Wood, said, quote, She would cue the adult actors if they would miss one of their lines, so she acquired the nickname One Take Natalie, end quote. So with the cast in place, off to Manhattan we go. As our story begins, we're treated to several tracking shots of New York City on Thanksgiving Day. City sidewalks, eh, what the hell, busy sidewalks dressed in holiday style. In the air, there's a feeling of Christmas. Shoppers rushing, presumably home, with their treasures. The camera follows a man with a cane as he makes his way along, crossing at intersections, branching out into greener pastures to change the pace by rounding a corner, and in a brilliant blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment, one woman who walks past him and towards the camera turns and gives him a strange look. I mean, to be honest, Santa's not exactly the type to just melt in the crowd. But at this point, we've only seen the back of his head. He stops at a storefront window, observes a worker setting up a display of Santa Claus and his reindeer, the worker looks up at him, and we have the first full frontal close-up of the beaming face of this dude, who's either Santa Claus himself or Jerry Garcia on mescaline. He jovially tells the unsuspecting worker that he done screwed up the reindeer, that they're out of order. He says, You've got Cupid where Blitzen should be, and Dasha, oh, Dasha should be on my right-hand side, and Donda's antlers have got four points instead of three. Still, I don't suppose anybody would notice except myself. To which the befuddled store clerk says, No, I don't suppose so. Bye and don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. Then, in classic 20th century Hollywood film style, we dissolve to a close-up of a newspaper with the sight of a human hand turning the page to an announcement that offers the viewing audience some plot exposition. And the announcement screams out in big, bold letters, Today, 10 a.m., rain or shine, Macy's annual Thanksgiving parade to welcome Santa Claus. Dissolve to shots of the parade floats getting ready and raring to go with Doris Walker, played by Maureen O'Hara, and Julian Shalhammer, played by Philip Tongue, both of Macy's, freezing their giblets off as they direct parade float traffic. Shalhammer runs up to O'Hara with his jingle in a jangle because the three men in a tub float is not big enough, and other such everyday problems. She tells him basically to screw off, she's good enough to deal with, and he frantically runs off to find the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Then what to our wondering eyes should appear but Chris Kringle himself in the crowd, smiling and watching as the man that Macy's hired to be Santa for the parade, having apparently belted a little too much brandy, drunkenly swings his whip around to practice his annual public display of animal cruelty. But the Indiana Jones wannabe stumbles and falls, so Chris makes his way over to the float, and with a jolly twinkle in his eye, he tells the lush, he seemed to have got mixed up with this whip of yours. He takes the whip from him and demonstrates a good snap and says that's all in the wrist. But then Chris Kringle follows his nose and says, You've been drinking. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. 
Don't you realize there are thousands of children lining the streets waiting to see you, children who have been dreaming of this moment for months? You're a disgrace to the tradition of Christmas, and I refuse to have you malign me in this fashion. He stomps off to find whoever is in charge of the parade. He is directed to Doris, and once he tells her that her Santa is blasted out of his mind, she gasps, Oh no! and runs quickly over with Chris Kringle in hot pursuit, and he's chastising her for hiring the guy who's had a little too much jolly in his jelly. She frantically turns to him in desperation and begs, Could you be our Santa Claus? Have you got any experience? And that question has him be like, but then he gets all self-righteous and says that he's not in the habit of substituting for spurious counterfeit Santas. She begs, he looks out at the children in the crowd, relents, and then agrees. Okay, I'm sorry, but if she's not supposed to have any idea that she's talking to the real McCoy, wouldn't you think that as a high-ranking executive that she'd at least say, we'll give you five bucks, or we'll get you a cup of coffee, or I'm getting you a pony, or something like that? Yeah, she's supposed to be all hard and hopeless, but she just walked up to a total stranger, never even asked him his name, and asked him to do her a solid and offered nothing in return. You need to leave. Then we see some shots of the parade and Chris Kringle, happier than a pig in shit, sitting in his sleigh and waving at the crowds. Down on the street, Shellhammer pulls up next to Doris and raves about how this is the best Santa they've ever had. Imagine if Mr. Macy had seen the drunken one. And in the film's first reference to the retail rivalry that's about to go down, she coyly replies, Imagine if Mr. Gimbal had seen the other one. She says she's going home, and if she feels like it, she can just watch the parade from the roof of her apartment building. She arrives home where her maid Cleo, played by Teresa Harris, tells her that little Susan is watching the parade with Fred Gailey in his apartment, which is visible through the window of their own. Cut to inside Fred's apartment as he and Susan are offering each other commentary on all of the floats as they pass by. He's trying to relate to her by mentioning Jack and the Beanstalk and giants that used to walk the earth. But she's just there like, get real, bro. He mentions fairy tales, and she says, oh, those. And when Fred asks her if her mother and father ever told her any, she nonchalantly says, my mother thinks those are silly. I don't know if my father does or not. I've never met him. They divorced when I was a baby. Just then, Doris shows up, and Fred lets her in. They exchange pleasantries, mentioning that Cleo told her that Fred took Cleo and Susan to the zoo the day before. So, at least it's not an eyebrow-raising, this is our first time hearing of each other and you've got my kid kind of moment that it would have otherwise been. She and Fred sit at the table and have coffee. Susan keeps watching the parade and commenting on how this Santa is better than last year's. Doris responds, oh, well, this was a last-minute substitute. The one I hired got sloshed off his ass. Fred tells Doris, so I guess she doesn't believe in Santa. And Doris proudly and self-righteously says, No, I believe we should be truthful with our children, not have them grow up believing in a lot of legends and myths, like Santa Claus, for example. She finishes her coffee, Susan compliments the talents of the acrobats in the parade, and Doris says they ought to be talented at those prices. So Ms. Funtime makes her way to the door with little Susan in tow, as Susan begs her to invite Fred for Thanksgiving dinner. Doris is hesitant and says that he must have other plans and Fred slings Doris' own words right back in her face when he says, If I'm to be truthful with the child, I have no other plans. Susan presses on, Oh, it's such a big turkey. Mother, it's just the two of us. Then she turns to Fred and says, Did I ask all right? Awkward. So, fun time turns to the smooth operator with a relenting smile on her face and says, Dinner's at three. She and Susan leave, with Susan whispering to Fred gleefully, It worked! before running off as he cabbage patches his way back into his apartment. 
This is at the 13-minute mark of the film, so let's stop there for the plot setup. While Fred jingles his merry bells in anticipation of what he hopes will be love over the bowl of Thanksgiving stuffing, and Susan delights in having company over in the form of a man who takes her and her maid to the zoo without asking her mother first, let's hop in Santa's sleigh for some behind-the-scenes fun facts. As always, I want to play fair and remind you that in this segment there may be spoilers, so proceed with the knowledge that there'll be references to different points in the film, potentially including the ending, so spoiler alert now. Number 5. The opening scenes at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade were the real thing. November 1946, cast and crew packed up and went to New York City to film the scenes before there was even a completed script. The studio predictably balked at the idea because of the costs involved, so director George Seaton said to them, then I'll pay for it myself because I need the authenticity. So the crowds that you see, they're real. New York City visitors or tourists from that season, maybe some locals. In the 90s, Maureen O'Hara would recall, quote, everything was done in the street and it was bitterly cold, freezing cold, and we were all pre-coached in everything that they wanted because the parade wasn't going to stop to let us do anything. So we had to do everything quickly, 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 and we did. End quote. Number four. Fox studio head Daryl Zanuck had such little faith in this project that he wanted to maximize profit margins as much as possible. So he made the decision to release the film in the summertime. So Miracle on 34th Street premiered in New York City on June 4th, 1947, and one week later, June 11th, in Chicago. His rationale was that because it was summertime, more people would be likely to go to the movies with kids out of school, and the air conditioning that some theaters had as well. The movie was a hit right out of the gate, and at a time when most movies would play for a week or two, this one lasted six months in its initial run, playing all the way to December that same year. Number three. In an effort to market the film to as wide of an audience as possible, men, women, kids, lovers of romance, lovers of comedy, lovers of sentiment, lovers of drama... The most ass-backwards marketing campaign promoted this film to the masses. The studio hid the Christmas element of the story, for one thing. If you look up the original poster, it's of Maureen O'Hara and Jean Payne prominently featured on either side, facing each other with grins like they just won the Nobel Prize. Natalie Wood is hugging Edmund Gwynn in the center, but far back in the background, not in close-up. And, of course, Kris Kringle is wearing everyday clothes, not a Santa outfit. For further proof that moviegoers had no idea what the hell they were buying tickets for when they were in line, just check out the original trailer for this film on YouTube. You will never see something so staged, so hokey, so insipid, and so vague in all your years. Let's just say that a fictional studio head in a montage watches the film in a screening room, laughing one moment, crying and wiping his eyes the next. You see? It's a movie for everyone. And Ann Baxter makes an appearance in the trailer as well, with the executive saying to her, Hey, I haven't seen you since the night of the Academy Awards. Congratulations on winning that Oscar. Dear God. There's more. No. Oh, yes, there is. Peggy Ann Garner makes a cameo as herself as well, learning how to drive and nearly running the executive down, then gushing about the film. I saw it three times, and it's simply groovy. Mr. Gwynn's just wonderful. You know, we worked together in Bob's Son of Battle. And he replies, yeah, I saw it. He's great in it. So, a shameless little plug for an upcoming film that Gwen and Peggy Ann were working on at the time. By the way, Bob, Son of Battle was the working title. If you want to look up that film, the release title was Thunder in the Valley, which came out the same year. Number two. In order to get permission from both Macy's and Gimbel's department stores to use their corporate names in the film, 
a legal arrangement was made that was pretty risky. The real names could be used during production of the film, but before it would be released, the corporate executives of both stores would have viewed the film first. If there were any objections, they then retained the right to demand changes, which potentially could have meant re-editing, recutting, and reshooting the vast majority of the film. On April 29, 1947, director George Seaton showed the final cut of the film to both the head of Gimbel's and the head of Macy's, separately, not together. Luckily, both gave the thumbs up. And number one. Filming the ending of the movie, when Fred, Doris, and Susan drive up to and walk inside the house that they would eventually buy and move into, that was a big problem weather-wise. The house is located at 24 Derby Road in Port Washington, New York, and it was so freezing cold the day of the shoot that the cameras actually froze. The woman who lived across the street, Vaughn Mellee, Mellee, M-E-L-E, she came to the rescue. She opened her home to the crew and let them set the cameras up in front of her lit fireplace to thaw them out. According to Maureen O'Hara, quote, I consider her generosity one of the miracles of Miracle on 34th Street. I was so grateful for her hospitality that I took her and her husband to dinner at the 21 Club that night. She was so thrilled that she couldn't eat a bite and only drank a glass of milk. Okay, I'm sorry, but if a big-time Hollywood star treated me to dinner, I'd be ordering two bottles of Dom Perignon Vintage 67, the lobster cocktail, the lobster bisque, lobster thermidor for four, and I don't even like lobster. And now it's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. The question for this episode, number 74, tried something different. On the socials for this podcast, there were four different frame grabs of Natalie Wood from the film, each with a different expression on her face. One skeptical, as if to say, give me a break. One goofy, as she imitates being a monkey with Kris Kringle. One of wonderment. And lastly, the famous image of her beaming as Santa hugs her close. The question was, on a scale of Natalie Wood, what are your thoughts on sentimental holiday favorites from a different era? From the Facebook group Silver Screeners, there were nine votes, six for the beaming Natalie hugging Santa, and one each for the other three. But on Twitter, it was the opposite story. 57% of the votes went to the cynical and skeptical, and 43% to the happy grin. So in aggregate, the cynic skeptics take the tinsel. Big thanks to all voters. As I say every time, these polls are just silly fun. They're all geared towards generating interest in each upcoming episode, so thank you for taking part in it. And don't forget to keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out Silver Screener's group on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram at FrankMandosa1974. Or you can email SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. One last thing before we close out, the listener trivia segment. In each episode, there is a different trivia question that is directly, and sometimes indirectly, related to the movies or the cast and crew involved, and you're all invited to take part in it at any time you want. Please know, though, that I do like to err on the side of caution, so I don't call out both first and last names, just in case that would make you uncomfortable, so I only announce first name and last initial, unless you tell me otherwise when you send in your answer, then full names it is. You get a shout-out as well as a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized greeting. Don't worry about timing either. Whatever episode you're listening to, doesn't matter if it's out of order, answer any trivia question from any episode at any time. You will get your meme and your shout-out. 
And if you're a creator of anything from music to podcasts to websites to YouTube series, hey, I'm always happy to give you a no-strings-attached plug because, as I say each and every time, people help people, and that's all there is to it. So last time, YouTuber Stephen J. Holleran and podcaster David A. Barrow joined me for an affectionate tribute to the first two Home Alone films. And the question was, after his Home Alone success, Macaulay Culkin featured in a recorded performance of what globally famous holiday-themed ballet with numbers like Arabian and Mazapan? And the answer is... The Nutcracker. A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting is on its way to the following in no particular order. The one and only legend Mary C., a longtime regular listener and trivia player. Mary, thank you as always, and happy holidays. We also have, straight from Italy himself, DJ Nick from the Gold Standard Oscars podcast, who offers this additional information. In Italy, the title of the first Home Alone film was Mom, I Missed the Plane, and as for the second, Mom, I Missed the Plane 2, I Am Lost in New York. Nick is always generous enough to share these fun facts about movie title translations, so a big thank you to him. And check out the podcast, The Gold Standard Oscars, which he hosts with his friends Rachel and Zan. We've been on each other's shows and have plans to do it some more, so stay tuned. Nick, you're awesome. And my buddy Chris from the podcast, The Movie Psycho, also did the mic drop and boom with the correct answer. We recorded together recently, so keep your eyes open for an upcoming episode where he makes a return appearance as well. Then there is also Liz M., my sister-in-law who kicks ass eight ways from Sunday. Congrats are in order to you, sis, and happy birthday. A return victor is Gail R., who I want to give a special thank you to, as she attended not one but two of my film talks in the past week over Zoom. One was on Miracle on 34th Street, and one was on Bing Crosby. Gail, thank you. Happy holidays. And another return trivia conqueror is Tamina P., who is part of the Silver Screeners Facebook group. Happy holidays to you as well. Thank you very much. And new listeners, Scott and Shelley, co-hosts of a movie podcast called The Film Obsessed Couple. We've been listening to each other's shows and we're hoping to be able to collaborate soon. They did a great series of episodes focusing on the Golden Girls, or I should say the actresses who played the Golden Girls. Definitely check those out. Happy holidays, Scott and Shelley. Happy holidays to all of you and to anybody listening. A big thank you to everyone as you are all sincerely appreciated. Whether or not you're a podcaster yourself, you keep this trivia segment alive and well. Keep your eyes open for those memes, and to anyone else kind enough to be listening, please do not hesitate to join in. Nothing to lose, and a shout-out and cool meme to gain. So go ahead and begin with this episode's question. Miracle on 34th Street reaches a pivotal moment when letters, written by God knows how many children to Santa Claus, are brought into the courtroom by Fred Gailey and placed on the judge's desk as evidence. The judge is played by Gene Lockhart, a pretty popular character actor in his day. Lockhart also played a starring role in What Other Christmas Film? It was released in 1938, stars Reginald Owen, takes place in 1800s London, and involves some paranormal activity around a stingy old miser named Ebenezer. Lockhart plays Ebenezer's hard-luck employee, Bob Cratchit. Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode or any episode, once again, hit me up on my socials. That's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or simply email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And that does it for episode 74. As I say at the conclusion each time, big thank yous once again for listening. 
Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please feel free to give Silver Screeners a rating on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It does help to boost the show's visibility in these platforms, which only means that more people can discover it and I can make a better show for you. Catch you next time. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of the interior of movie theaters everywhere on those hot and humid summer evenings, when to avoid heat waves, summer mosquitoes, and final exams, unsuspecting moviegoers and kids settled into their seats to watch a film that, according to the trailer, promised to be exciting, romantic, hysterical, sentimental all at once, only to observe the opening credits begin and see Edmund Gwynn's jolly bearded face light up as he heard the sounds of jingle bells in the distance.